0: The Curbsiders Podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. For the the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host, and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs. If indeed there are any, in fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong.
1: This episode of the Curbsiders is brought to you in partnership with the Society of Hospital Medicine. Members can claim CME and mock credit at www.shmlearningportal.org forward slash Curbsiders. Well, Paul, we're back. Hi, uh, hey, Matt. Oh, and Stuart's here too, of course. (laughs) So we are, this is the Curbsiders. This is Things We Do For No Reason, part three. Paul, can you tell them what we do on this show?
2: Sure, ever so briefly and without chiding, this is the internal medicine podcast we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice changing knowledge.
1: And with us tonight is our expert producer, Dr. Justin Lee Burke. Justin, can you tell them uh, the specific topics for tonight and introduce our guests?
3: Absolutely. We have another excellent things we do for no reason episode where we talk about high goal light potassium replacement. We talk about supplemental oxygen and antipsychotics for delirium. We have two returning guests, Dr. Lenny Feldman and Dr. Tony Brew, things we do for no reason experts. They are co-editors of the things we do for no reason series in the journal of hospital medicine. Um, They are lovely and are uh, just wonderful teachers. So, Without further ado, let's get to it.
1: Lenny and Tony, this is your third time back. We are thrilled to have you here. These are really popular shows. The audience loves it when we have you guys on to talk about things we do for no reason. Um, We're going to get all into that, but Lenny, we'll start with you. Give the audience a one-liner, remind them a little bit about yourself, and uh, then we'll go to Tony next.
4: Sure. Um, Thanks for having us back on. We really appreciate it. So... I am almost a 47-year-old. I am two days away uh, from 47. A husband, a father of an incredibly energetic and cute 15-month-old, a baseball fan uh, who is still in a major depression because his baseball team is no good, uh, who loathes dogma and can't stop watching stupid political shows.
5: <laughs>
4: okay. Nice. Like impeachment things. Mm. Uh,
5: Tony? Uh, Yep, so uh, I'm uh, 41, interestingly five days from my birthday, um, uh, and a father of two, uh, husband to uh, a brilliant endocrinologist, and I also happen to be listening to all this impeachment coverage uh, to and from work, uh, and I can't say that it's uh, lifting my spirits.
3: (laughs) Guys, I want to say I'm six days from my birthday, so... uh...
5: This is weird. (laughs) This
3: is
2: basically a birthday episode. (laughs) And so, tell us your feelings about impeachment. <laughs> so That's
1: there, box. there will be there will be cake at the end of this episode. Yeah. Uh, but to celebrate all your birthdays, why don't we talk about some picks of the week? And let's start with let's start with Lenny, since he's closest to his birthday.
4: Wow, thank you. Um, and <laughs> I, my guess is you've probably heard this pick of the week already uh, in the last couple months, and I don't know for sure. So I'll I'll do two. Uh, one is. Uh, we did, I did make it to a movie, even with a 15-month-old. We made it to a movie over the holidays, and we saw Knives Out. Uh, so mm. if that has not been a pick for the week... Did uh, you
0: bring your 15-month-old to that one?
4: We did not. We left mm. him uh, with his grandparents. And it was yeah. very enjoyable. I would recommend Knives Out. And then a book to recommend that's relatively new that I have been reading is Priced Out, uh, which is Uwe Reinhart's book. Uh, it came out uh, posthumously because he died in ni- in 2017, and it came out in 2019. And Uwe Reinhart uh, writes a, a great book about understanding the economic and ethical costs of American health care. So if you want to get a good sense of why we pay what we pay for things, it's a good book to read.
1: Oh, that sounds great. Have not heard of that one. Oh, wait, Tony, how about you?
5: Uh, so right now I am uh, listening to Crisis in the Red Zone uh, by Richard Preston. Uh, so Richard Preston also wrote The Hot Zone, uh, which, was at a, which was about the Ebola outbreak in Western Virginia in the 1990s. And so this is uh, about the Ebola outbreaks in 1976 and 2014 in Africa. And it's um, the amazing thing is because it's a, a true story, uh, as you listen or read, uh, it's even more frightening. Uh, but it covers ethics, politics, obviously medicine. It's just absolutely riveting. Um, it, it's it's fantastic. Justin, what about you?
3: Yes. Um, I have a new favorite internal medicine medical education podcast, or at least second favorite. It is the Cardio Nerds um, that's created by two extremely intelligent cardiology fellows, Amit Goyle and Daniel Ambinder, both who were my um, seniors uh, when I was a resident. And they are very good at taking very complex cardiac concepts and making them very simple. I really wish I had it to listen to right before going into a CCU rotation uh, because I would have felt a lot less embarrassed from my first aortic stenosis admission. Um, But it's definitely worth checking out. Cardio Nerds, very good stuff.
1: Cool. Paul and Stuart, before we get on with the show, did you guys have any burning picks of the week, Paul?
0: Nah, nothing burning i got something burning yeah so <laughs> stories uh, in honor of the uh, amazing novel coronavirus i have a semi-documentarial film uh it's directed by wolfgang peterson it came out in 1995 it's a uh, tells you how to survive one of these outbreaks it's called uh well it's called outbreak and i'm sure paul would have something to say about this movie because i frankly don't
2: I, have you seen the movie or did uh, you just actually Wikipedia the word out and just and you were and you're just praying to God I would have something to say about? Is it Dustin Hoffman? It is Dustin Russo. Yeah. Okay, yep. yep. I saw
0: it. I, I saw it in the '90s. That's that's all I can say.
2: Too. I don't
5: believe you. I don't think you've ever seen the movie. I
0: don't. I don't. It's that's I actually. I think you're
5: laying scary. eyes on
2: it for the first time tonight. That's not that true Dustin at all.
5: Hoffman movie is just not very good.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's. I, I don't think it was critically loved, if I remember correctly. No, no, it was not.
1: So rather than a pick of the week, it's, it's a movie that you've heard of.
4: <laughs> I saw it uh, in a drive-in. Uh, it was a twofer. Uh, so you had Dustin Hoffman as an action hero in Outbreak. Sure. And then it came with it was Bridges over Madison County, which uh, had Clint Eastwood as a romantic lead. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs>
2: I thought you were going to say Rain Man was. Who? Yeah. <laughs> okay. I think we've Who is get- this drive in for? Like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what demographic are you targeting with outbreak in Bridges of Madison County?
1: Paul, I think uh, this- we all know we'll never answer that question. Let's. Justin, can you start us off with a case?
3: Absolutely. So we have uh, our first case is a Mr. Eric Loke. He is a 40-year-old gentleman. He's admitted to Cash Slack Hospital with a STEMI. He had a heart attack. It involved the inferior region of his heart. He had a stint that was successfully placed in his troponin, peak 20, um, but is now downtrending. Overnight, the CCU nurse calls to say, you know, his potassium is 3.7 and magnesium is 1.4. I think you must have forgotten to activate the replacement protocol. Um, Are you going to, quote, buff the lights? So, Lenny, for a patient like this, can you go through what are the current guidelines on electrolyte abnormalities in patients that come in with a heart attack?
4: Yes, that's a great question. So the first of all, probably uh, the potassium, we would all say, relatively normal range in most hospitals, I think in cash lack, is 3.5 to 5. I think we could all pretty much agree on that. There are some people who will say it goes up to 5.5, but most of us use sort of that 3.5 to 5 as the normal potassium level. And then exactly what the potassium should be in an acute MI patient, there really aren't great guidelines on this at all. The European Resuscitation Council guidelines for resuscitation in 2015 said, that there's no universal definition for uh, hyperkalemia. Um, They defined hypokalemia as less than 3.5. They went for hyperkalemia greater than 5.5. But in general, most of the guidelines, uh, back in 99, there was some reference to trying to buff the lights to get them to be greater than four. But then most of the guidelines, and that was AHA, ACC, most of the guidelines then became, if you have, Ventricular fibrillation or ventricular tachycardia, and you are trying to prevent recurrent VFib or VTAC, then you probably want to get the potassium greater than four. But there's really no guideline that says you should be in a for a patient with acute MI, a specific potassium of greater than four. Although we are all taught that, I can't. I don't know if there's anybody who's uh, not been taught in internal medicine that you need to get. The potassium greater than four in an acute uh, MI patient, and there are there's the National Council on Potassium in Clinical Practice, and so if if anybody um, is part of that, uh, I'm sorry if I'm I'm bringing it up and and poo pooing it at all, but um, they say that patients with cardiac arrhythmias you want to get the potassium greater than four and make sure you give some magnesium with it, um, and there's a study that are recommendations from this dude, McDonald et al., who said it would appear wise to avoid potassium levels above 4.5, but that group thought that you should try to maintain a serum potassium above 4.5 during acute MI. But no major organizations tell us where we should be in the acute MI patient. We're just handing this down from generation to generation.
1: Yeah. the, The curious thing too, to me, is okay. It's one thing in acute MI, and and as you pointed out, the guidelines, even in in the acute MI guidelines, they're like if they've had these two lethal arrhythmias, like VT, uh, you know, refractory VT or VFib, then you know it's reasonable to aggressively get the potassium sure. and magnesium to four and two, but the everyone seems to do that for like every medically ill patient in the hospital. Yeah,
4: yeah I think it started in our acute MI patients, and then as many things that start in the ICU, it then is brought to the floor and we start generalizing it to everybody. And it just sort of gets a life of its own. And so they started with these topics or with these studies in the mid 80s, where they started looking at patients. um, And I think this is kind of where the potassium greater than four came from. They started with these really small studies. There's One study like this in circulation where they only had 60 patients. Back then, you could get in circulation with a study of 60 (laughs) patients.
1: And it probably had a horrible name too. Nothing clever.
4: (laughs) They did, Yeah, they did not have uh, uh, some great acronym that went with it. And they looked at 60 patients who came to the CCU within 12 hours of their first AMI. And they were excluded if you got anything like DIG or beta blockers or calcium antagonists. Uh, or antiarrhythmic drugs, and basically all the patients were treated with uh, were, because this is the standard of care back in the 80s, oral diazepam, oxygen, which we'll get to in a little bit, uh, morphine, and no one usually got electrolyte supplementation. And so they checked the (laughs) electrolytes on admission, and then they followed continuous EKGs, and they wanted to see, generally, do you have arrhythmias? And what they found was that, yes, and it it was the potassium that they were looking at was the admission potassium. That's it. All of this is related to the admission potassium, not mean potassiums during the hospitalization, not the potassium when the patient had an arrhythmia. What was their admission potassium? And they did see in their studies that as the potassium went lower, there was more of a risk of VT. And they thought that. Serum potassium concentration at admission was an independent predictor variable for VT and it's studies like this, a bunch of them in the mid eighties that then people said, okay, then we must need to get our potassium greater than four to avoid VT. And this is not about mortality at all. This is about VT, but we decided to extrapolate to mortality.
0: So, so Lenny, what's the risk? What's the risk to pushing the, the
4: potassium? Uh, so you didn't you guys didn't ask uh, at the beginning uh, what our biggest failure was but I'll, I'll tell you one of my big failures uh, and and I, I think this is part of the risk um, so and my wife likes to remind me of this patient on a, a relatively regular basis when I was a resident at Cash Slack, uh many years ago since you can begin to time it since I'm turning 47 uh, I had a I think it was a second year resident and I Uh, was, it was the first time I was leading a team and it was over the weekend and my interns were gone. And I had this elderly patient that I was getting ready to send to a sniff and he had a low potassium on the day I was going to send him to the sniff. So I saw low potassium. I mean, low potassium, less than four. It wasn't super low, but it was low. And so I said, I need to supplement the potassium. So I gave him some IV potassium. I assume, I can't remember exactly. I assume it was IV potassium to get that potassium up. And then they came to take him off to the sniff and he was dead when they came to take him off to the sniff. Yes. Uh, And my wife likes to remind me about that uh, patient on on a pretty regular basis. And I think that's one of the things we need to worry about. You give potassium to a patient in a bolus and bad things can happen if their heart is already pretty excitable. So we that the the concern is changes in potassium can really uh, affect uh, heart uh, activity pretty rapidly uh, if we're not careful.
0: It's hard to beat that uh, that failure. <laughs> that was
4: a bad, that was a bad failure. So it, we finally started getting some better data about this stuff in in 2012. Because really, we had been running with these kind of small studies from the mid-80s until we started getting observational studies in uh, early 2012. And uh, Goyle et al., I, I think many of us remember the study that came out in JAMA, where and it, these are all retrospective and they're all observational, uh, but they're pretty large. This was a study of about 40,000 patients with acute MI from 2000 to 2008. Again, they also looked at the admission potassium, but they also looked at the mean potassium during the hospitalization. And this was at a bunch of different hospitals. This was 67 hospitals that they looked at. And they wanted to, again, correlate this admission and the mean post potassium with both arrhythmia and with mortality. And we finally had a study that was a really big study to look at. And, and what we saw was in general that if you had a potassium of about 3.5 to 4, you had the lowest mortality. uh, And it was right around the mortality of having a potassium of 4 to 4.4. But if you started getting above 4.4, 4.5 in that 4.5 to 4.9 category, mortality went up to about 10%. And if you went below 3.5, mortality was at about 11%. So you get the sense that this is a U-shaped curve where that 3.5, or the 3.5 to 4 and the 4 to 4.4 is sort of the bottom of that curve. And on either side of it, mortality starts to go up as does uh, the risk of uh, ventricular fibrillation. And so that was one of the first signs that maybe buffing the lights actually can lead to, to real harm and not just anecdotal stories like I gave of my patient in residency.
1: That that paper has in the in the introduction, the authors kind of speculating, saying that they that most of the studies that found these potassium associations were the older ones were before there was like routine use of beta blockers and re, uh, reperfusion therapy, and uh, like the early invasive stuff that gets done now for acute MIs, and and that in the current era there's like less of these like re, like post MI arrhythmias than there used to be because we have better therapy now.
4: Oh, I, I think that's probably absolutely true. I mean, I told you what the therapy was back in the mid eighties. Right. The you said valium, I think, morphine and, and, yeah, and oxygen, diazepam,
1: whatever. Yeah, please. Yeah.
4: No trade names, man. Remember where you are.
1: But... <laughs> yeah. It was my own rule. <laughs> uh,
4: but yeah, we weren't doing uh, very much for those patients. And now we have a uh, really great guideline directed mer- medical therapy that I think lowers people's mortality very significantly. And uh, we don't know how that interacts with potassium levels, particularly their admission potassium level.
5: So sometimes it's helpful to offer an alternate explanation, right? So one explanation is obviously that the low potassium is causing these arrhythmias. And an alternate explanation is that it's an epineph phenomenon and right. we're, it's a confounder. And so the way you might explain that is the patient who on admission has a low potassium That is an indicator of a lot of catecholamines, Mm -hmm. because catecholamines turn on the, the sodium potassium ATPase and shift the potassium into the cell. And so the catecholamines also may be the things that are leading to the arrhythmia. So there's other ways to explain the association between low potassium levels on admission and the subsequent VTVF, and you don't have to say, ah, look, it's the low potassium that was the cause.
2: So, you're making an argument for diazepam, is what I'm hearing here. <laughs> that's exactly what I'm doing. Potassium should help. I
3: think potassium
4: should help. Well, ho- hopefully, <laughs> he's making the argument for a randomized controlled trial. Well,
5: yeah. uh, also or, beta blockers. Yeah. I mean, or that's beta why, blockers. One of the reasons why beta blockers work.
4: Sure. So, but, but it would be nice to be able to limit the question to are we giving, uh, are we buffing potassium or are we not buffing potassium rather than have all the other confounders in the mix?
1: Right. So, Lenny, give us your expert opinion. Potassium three, you know, less than 3.5 in a med- acutely admitted medical patient, what's your threshold to give repletion? And like, which patients sh- should we not be repleting?
4: All right. So it's a hard question because it, this is again, all observational data. So sure, sure. these are, these are all patients with acute MI. There's also some studies on patients with unstable angina and STEMI kind of pictures. Again, it, it looks like similar data. So, I would say the patients who are between 3 and 3.5, we should replete. It seems based on the observational data that 3.5 to 4 is a good threshold to shoot for. Uh, And then, if they're 4 to 4.5, that's fine as well. Certainly, don't try to get above 4.4 into the 4.5 and above category. Uh, So, that's, and, and that's, again, our patients with acute MI. And then, you can start talking about other patients. There's been some studies relatively recently of ICU patients. There's been some studies of uh, patients with acute decompensated heart failure, again, with very similar data that the 3.5 to 4 patients seem to do better. Uh, but again, this is all observational data that we don't know in the end what really the, the right thing is, except that's the best data we have.
1: Okay any anyone else uh, what are you what are you going to do in your practice tony based on based on this are you going to keep the potassium between 3.5 and 4.5 and call it a day you know replete to at least 3.5 and call it a day
5: yeah so i what lenny does or is recommending is similar to to what i do which is i i look for the patients who are at high risk the patients who have acute mi um, what the data doesn't necessarily support acute heart failure as, as strongly as acute MI, but I generally lump those patients in and the patients who have uh, cirrhosis at risk for hepatic encephalopathy, I have a slightly higher goal for them over three and a half. Otherwise over three I'm comfortable with.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes I factor in like if I'm giving them IV, you know, loop diuretics twice a day, right. then I'm going to want it at least like 3.5. And a, and if it's like three point three, I know I have to give them repletion because it's going to drop. I don't want it to drop lower. Still.
4: Yeah, and some of the studies look at sort of the variability, the the changes in potassium during the hospitalization, and it does seem that the greater the variability, the higher the risk yeah. uh, for patients. Mm-hmm. But some of that is we can't really control, right? It, we yeah. have, if you have a patient who's in for heart failure and you need to diurese, you need to diurese, and you know that they are potentially likely to get. Uh, have big changes in their potassium because of it.
0: All right. Here's my segue. It's K-O. All right. (laughs) So case number two, Margaret Bohr is a 28-year-old female with a history of asthma who presents to the emergency department with a shortness of breath. She has a respiratory rate of 25 and an oxygen saturation of 94%. She has then started on two liters of nasal cannula, O2, off the wall, which improves her O2 saturation to 99%. We're feeling great about ourselves. And I got a question for you, Tony. So oxygen is great for you. It's good for you, right? Or at least it's harmless. Isn't that right? (laughs) Uh,
5: So that's obviously a loaded question. Um, So oxygen is good for us. I think all of us on the call, all of us who are listening absolutely need oxygen. But I think the thing we... um, either haven't quite learned yet or have learned but sometimes forget is oxygen can be harmful. Um, So there's, I think, a couple things that we have to talk about for this topic. And and the first is um, that as we increase supplemental O2 to patients, um, we do a very, very good job of increasing PO2. Okay? So if you turn up the O2 and you increase someone's PO2, right, the partial pressure of oxygen from 100 to 500 millimeters of mercury in that exact change from 100 to 500 for PO2 you've incre- increased the total content of oxygen by just 6% right so the tissues even though your PO2 has gone from 100 to 500 they're only seeing a 6% increase in actual content of oxygen okay and so we're actually not delivering that much more oxygen to the tissues when we when we turn up the O2 But the problem results from the fact that the sensors that react to oxygen delivery react to PO2, okay? So as we increase the supplemental oxygen, we turn up the nasal cannula, we put them on a mask. Um, We do a fantastic job of increasing the partial pressure, increasing what the oxygen sensors are going to see, but we're not actually delivering any more oxygen. And it's this sensation that the PO2 um, uh, sort of tickles. That becomes problematic. So, before I talk about that, questions about that first piece that any of you guys have—that makes sense. You're saying the
1: sensors in the pulse oximeter that people are wearing on their fingers is is picking up the increase. You know, we're buffing the numbers there. Is that
2: what you're saying? Or the saying? biologic sensors, like the sensors? The
1: biologic people. sensors. Yeah. yeah okay. So
5: I'm talking about pulse sensors, right? So the, these. Um, let's let's not. I mean, yeah, the hypoxia inducible <laughs> factor, right? Yes. Those the sensors in the endothelial ah, wall. I got it. Right? Okay. So so, so that leads to the second thing that we have to remember, which is that um, when you increase the PO2, the reaction by the vessels is to vasoconstrict, right? And the reason the vasoconstrict is that oxygen is toxic. And, And to be a little bit more precise, oxygen's free radicals, right, the superoxide and the hydrogen peroxide, those things are toxic. And so when you increase the PO2, what you're telling the tissues is, wow, we have a lot of this toxic molecule coming our way, and we're going to vasoconstrict to protect the tissues from this toxic molecule, again, really, that the free radicals that result from this toxic molecule. So what you're doing is you're, you're turning up the O2. We all do that. We increase the PO2, but don't really increase the content. We've increased it by like 6%, Right. We haven't increased the content that much. And then in response, the vessels vasoconstrict and decrease the delivery of blood to the tissues because they don't want to see all this oxygen we're trying to give it. Does that make sense so far? Yep. Okay.
3: I'm sorry. When you say the 6% that goes up, that's the 6%?
5: Total oxygen content. And so what I can do is I can, uh, Justin, I can send you some, um, a, a really amazing editorial written by Jill Escalza, who's the chief of medicine at Brigham, in response to uh, the randomized trial published in the New England Journal of 2017. I'm taking his calculations that are showing these changes in oxygen content. Mm. And I'll send you another paper that shows the the, um, oxygen hemoglobin dissociation curve. And it has additional line for total oxygen content. And what's amazing about it is it's essentially a flat line. It does not go up even as the PO2 goes up from 100 to 500. That does that help Justin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. very. Okay. Um, so so tissues say I don't want all this oxygen. I'm going to protect myself and I'm going to vasoconstrict. Okay? And so what that does is it leads us to the evidence for harm. And there's actually been evidence of harm dating back to the 1800s. Uh, So, uh, uh, James Lorraine Smith put birds in chambers and gave them increasing oxygen contents. And short answer is they did not do well. They had convulsions. They died. Um, And then there's experimental data going back to the uh, 1940s showing that when you give increasing FiO2, there's vasoconstriction of the arteries feeding the brain, unsurprisingly. So, there's decreased flow to the brain. Uh, and the same is seen for coronary arteries in studies in the subsequent decades. So we have all this good sort of physiologic data, um, but it, it's hard to overcome this idea that, in, at least in the setting of something like an acute MI, oh, well, this is you know hypoxia of the heart. Clearly, we want to deliver more oxygen, so let's just turn up the FiO2. But again, the problem is the same phenomenon happens to the coronary arteries. They vasoconstrict in response to increasing PO2 in many ways to protect the the heart from this toxic oxygen.
3: Wow! So this sounds great, you know, from a theory standpoint and an animal models, <laughs> but is there is there any evidence in in practice uh, of oxygen harming patients?
5: Yeah, so so let me offer a, a, a couple studies. So. In the acute MI patients, and I think everyone who's on this call probably learned MONA in medical school, right? You know, acute MI, morphine, oxygen, nitro, and aspirin, and I think a lot of the listeners probably heard MONA. Um, and so EMS, emergency medicine, admitting hospitalists all put patients on oxygen. And we began to chip away at MONA uh, over the last decade, and oh, uh, supplemental oxygen is one of the things we've chipped away at. And the study I'll offer you is this randomized control trial from 2015 published in Circulation. And what they did is they took patients who had an O2 over, uh, uh, sorry, under 94, and they gave them either 8 liters of oxygen or no supplemental oxygen. And the, the really interesting thing is that the patients who got the supplemental oxygen had an increased risk of recurrent MI and a larger infarct size. Going along with this idea that if you give them more oxygen, the coronaries constrict, amazingly enough, to protect from all that extra oxygen.
0: Do, do you happen to know if there is also correlation with magnesium deficiency? Um, reason being is because magnesium deficiency, it, it, it increases the express, expression of inducible nitric oxide synthase and would further exacerbate the, the uh, free radical oxygen-mediated vasoconstriction
5: it's a it's a it's a question I don't have the answer to, at least in this trial. Um, sure. and 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 Stuart, your your question is a good one because th- what these reactive oxygen species are doing is decreasing nitric oxide. Right. that's That's exactly right what they're doing to to reduce the vasodilation. So it's in many ways a reversal of vasodilation. There have been subsequent studies. There were actually studies before this one in two thousand and fifteen. There are studies in critical, critically ill patients showing harm to oxygen. And I think all of us know that there's um, uh, harms when you just turn up the O2 in patients who have acute exacerbations of COPD. So it's not just patients with acute MI. Yeah. Can you tell us? Go
1: ahead. I I was going to ask Tony if he could talk a little bit about how the oxygen, it differs a little bit in the lung, right? The the way that oxygen affects blood flow in the lung, doesn't it?
5: Yeah. So uh, I think we've all heard of um, uh, hypoxic vasoconstriction in the lung, right? So if I'm poorly ventilating an area of the lung, I don't want to deliver oxygen to that area. So I, we vasoconstrict. And my understanding is it's, it's, it's complex as to why the, the lung and the systemic circulation react differently. But I think it has something to do with this hypoxia inducible factor. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, but undoubtedly, they do react differently to low oxygen tension.
1: Yeah. And the the article that you you guys had sent us for the things we do for no reason article had mentioned that that could potentially, if you're giving oxygen, it could open up these areas of the lung that are not getting good blood flow. And it could cause actually like some type of shunting and actually kind of worsen things. Um, I I just thought it was interesting. I didn't fully understand all the physiology, but it seemed like it was a lot more complex than I thought about how like you could make a patient with COPD worse by really pushing the oxygen.
5: Yeah. So, so the uh, patients who have um, acute COPD exacerbation or placed on oxygen, I think we all say, be careful. Uh, they might become hypercarbic. And what I learned in medical school and said throughout residency is the physiology of that was the, quote unquote, loss of hypoxic drive. Same. Right? Same. Yep. And that, un- that is almost certainly playing a role but it's actually the loss of hypoxic vasoconstriction that is probably a greater contributor. And it's not something that we can probably easily explain without pictures and diagrams. But I think the key thing for the listeners is this hypoxic vasoconstriction in the lung, as opposed to hypoxic vasodilation in the other areas, uh, is... um, uh, a contributor to the hypercarbia in acute COPD.
1: Okay. Thank you. What? Now,
2: are we to do with this? <laughs> <laughs> so, all all super interesting, but I'm a dumb guy. I'll be the resident dumb yeah. guy here. Just just tell me what to do, Tony. That's all I ask.
5: Yeah. So so there's some great recommendations published in the British Medical Journal in 2018, which we can also uh, put in the show notes. And their strongest recommendations uh, were for patients with acute MI and acute stroke. Because remember, the same way that the coronary arteries vasoconstrict, the cerebral arteries do. Uh, and they came down very hard um, that you do not want to give supplemental oxygen um, if they're above 92, strong recommendation. And a weak recommendation, you do not want to give supplemental oxygen if they're over 90, right? So you can probably safely, in a patient with acute MI, acute stroke, hold off on oxygen assuming they're over 90, okay? The, everybody else, the patient with a pneumonia, the patient with cellulitis, they don't come up with a a, a a lower limit, right? They don't say start at at ninety, but they say definitely turn off or down if they're over ninety six. Okay, so if we're rounding, the patient's hospitalized with acute pancreatitis, their oxygen is ninety two, and they're on supplemental. Turn it down or off. Okay, I generally this is my practice. This is not quite what the guidelines say. I essentially do 90 or above for everybody. Meaning if you're 90 or above on your own, I'm not giving you supplemental O2. Right. Okay. And I lower that for the patient with acute COPD to 88. Okay. Um, So strong recommendation uh, for 92 or above for uh, uh, acute MI or stroke. Weak recommendation 90 or above uh, for MI or stroke. And then I think ninety six. I think what we have to have in our mind is, if you're over ninety six, you've got to turn them down.
1: Yeah, Paul, our our good friend Erin Naruski made a point. This one of on one of our shows at Chest, she made this point that the symptom of dyspnea is not is not necessarily treated by oxygen because. A lot of the time, dyspnea, there's a different mechanism. It's not hypoxemia that's like causing the person to feel short of breath. It might be something else. It might be fluid. It might be a pneumonia in their lung. And you got, kind of have to treat the underlying cause. But giving oxygen is like maybe buffing the numbers again, but not necessarily going to help their, their breathing problem.
5: Right. Well, yeah, th- there's some patients who do report a subjective improvement. And I don't know if there's some positive pressure that comes along. In, it, it, I can't imagine two liters of nasal cannula is giving a positive pressure, but it's hard. To, it, uh, some patients do report subjective improvement, but I think to routinely use it for that sensation of dyspnea, that's incorrect. We should not do that.
4: But Tony, what do we do about that oxygen fairy <laughs> that comes along at night and you've taken off, you've taken the oxygen off your patient and you get there in the morning and the supplemental oxygen is right back on. And then you, know, you so transfer, transfer them.
5: So I've, um, there are a number of people who posted on Twitter these great pictures of, um, you, you know how in hotels they have the things that hang from the door saying like, do not disturb? What they've done is in, in some hospitals, they've put those on the the oxygen you know, system. Oh, yeah, can you know, like tag off. on that. Right. Exactly. Tape it
3: on the patient's forehead. Exactly.
5: So you could tape it on their forehead, or you could put it on on the actual thing where they turn the dial up or down, and it says, "Here are my goal O2s." And I, I just think that's you. you, that's you brilliant. Gotta go, that's, you got to yeah. go right to the place where the problem is happening, and it's at that dial. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And I think that's that's the way to go.
1: And the the sad thing is, it's it's a well intentioned person for sure. And it's, it's probably the technician that's checking the vital signs and being like, oh, their saturation's 92%. It should be 100. And they put them on four liters or something. You know, it's, it, yeah.
5: It is, Absolutely. It's,
1: it's a shockingly hard thing to do to wean someone off oxygen in the hospital. Like, you have to tell a lot of people. <laughs> so maybe the hang tag is like, you know, high enough up maybe the chain of things that it would work.
4: Maybe yeah. even mm-hmm. harder than taking people off telemetry.
5: Getting DocuSaid like, off your formula, also, yeah, Very no, no, That's impossible. But, but I, <laughs> and and I, I think it's we're also um, obligated to counsel our patients. Uh, you know, Just like with a blood pressure of 180 as a, a, a solo reading, patients freak out about that. Yeah. We, we're obligated to remind them that a single reading if you're asymptomatic is okay. Same here. I think sometimes we don't tell our patients, it's okay if you're 92% on Ruber. You do not need to be 100. I think. I think we did a pretty good job on this
1: one. So, yeah. if if you want to, Tony, you want to recap the recommend—just one more time—your your
5: recommendations for your lower limit
1: and then your upper limit.
5: So, so my personal is, I don't start uh, supplemental O2 if they're above ninety. Okay. Um, that that's the that's the easiest way to do it. And I actively wean, certainly if they're over ninety six. Like I, that that yep. you got to turn it down or off if they're over ninety six. And then okay. I'm, I'm a little bit more lenient for C, acute COPD, 88 or above.
4: Okay. okay. I've definitely been using the 88. Okay. And
0: okay. then uh, I have an acronym for uh, free radical formation. It's uh, O2MG. And that's a good segue to our next case. <laughs>
3: okay.
0: <Yeah. laughs> that, that, that oh. One more thing, or just to, to make sure, because I know,
3: um, I feel like uh, residents have talked a lot about the IOTA trial or the IOTA analysis. Oh, yeah. um, we, I don't think we mentioned, but just to kind of put in there and Tony, correct me if I'm wrong, but essentially there was a very large Lancet study that did a meta-analysis that did kind of confirm that having a saturation above uh, a certain level, 94, or 95, was harmful and even led to, I believe, death of 30 days.
5: Yeah. So I'll make a very brief comment about this. As you get to 95 or above... This is where you begin to have those PO2s that increase without any increase in oxygen delivery. Mm. So that's why this 95 is an important number. You just, you're just you giving them a lot of PO2, but you're not giving them any more oxygen, which is oh. counterintuitive, by the way. So you guys need to – I think the listeners need to look at the figure that hopefully Justin will put in the show notes.
4: You got it. You got it. Justin, I didn't know you – that had any iota what that was about. I knew that was coming.
1: I was, was ready for that's, it. That's yeah that's
5: I it
4: from Stuart,
1: <laughs> it from Lenny, but I'll take it either way. I think stewart gave Lenny the bounce pass on that one.
0: I appreciate it. I'm okay with that.
1: There's yeah. Jerks. Paul, did you want to read the last case? Yeah, I guess I, I, I feel like you, just, Paul, if you want to take the rest of the night off, well, I got this, you know, I mean, no, it's just
2: the name. I feel like you saved this one for me because the name is the most aggressively dumb of all the cases, but we'll just, we'll power it through. it's fine. So this is our patient, Hal Dahlman, um, who is probably otherwise okay. He's an 82 year old guy. He's got a history of dementia. He's presenting to the ED with shortness of breath. He is diagnosed in the ER with pneumonia, admitted to the hospital service, and overnight on his first night of admission, he pulls out his IVs. He starts running around the hallway. He's clearly disoriented. The nurse calls the resident and says that the resident needs to give this patient something um, for whatever's going on here. So I guess before we decide what to treat with, we should probably discuss what we're treating. So Lenny, what, what what is going on here and what is the nurse asking of us exactly?
4: Sure. So it sounds like this patient is probably delirious. And so let's define delirium. I think the important thing to remember, there's a few different parts of it. One, it needs to be an acute change, usually fluctuating in cognition that's characterized most importantly by inattention. So it's not just someone who doesn't know where they are. Um, It's way different than dementia. These are people who are not attending to you as you are speaking to them. And it's typically associated with some disorganized thinking and or alterations in consciousness. Uh, so the, the real important parts is it's acute and almost always involves inattention. And so then there are, you, you have to think about ways of trying to diagnose it. Uh, and this brings me to two of my favorite tests because uh, I think it is incredibly easy to do and uh, you can do some quick and dirty kind of stuff. So does anybody have sort of favorite tests that they use for, for delirium? Head CT. <laughs>
2: Your analysis,
4: <laughs> sure. So there are bedside tests you know, where we can talk to the patient, um, and so one of the first things we want to do is rule it out, right? And so the uh, this is kind of the D dimer of uh, delirium tests. There are two tests you can give. You can ask what day of the week it is, and you can ask them to do the months backwards. So what day of the week it is and months backwards, the sensitivity for delirium is 93%. The specificity is about 64%. So this is a great way of ruling out delirium. If someone's able to tell you what day of the week it is and then do the months backwards, they're not delirious or very unlikely to be delirious. Now, delirium, it depends on what sort of, whenever you have your, use your sensitivity and specificity and come up with likelihood ratios. It's all about what's your pretest probability and up to a third of our patients who are older than 70 will become delirious in the hospital. So you could come up with a sort of pretest probability of around one third of your patients. If you do that and you use the two tests that I talked about and they are negative, then your likelihood of delirium is down to about 5%. So you've gone from 33% down to 5%, and that's pretty darn good. If they don't answer those correctly, then your post-test probabilities is around 55%. So you're still not sure that they're actually delirious, and you can start using some other tests at that point, like the 3D Cam, which uh, came out, uh, I think, in 2014 in an article in Annals of Internal Medicine, uh, which is uh, 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 uses a bunch of different features to try to make the diagnosis. Uh, but uh, in, in general, uh, start with those two tests that I talked about, and if they're positive, then go on to uh, do more testing to decide if you think that they are delirious or not. But all of this is asking them things and observing things, not sending them for head CTs.
1: Yeah, Justin, come on.
4: Got it. <laughs> MRI next time.
3: Uh, Can you send the article, Lenny, about the specificity sensitivity of the. Yeah,
4: yeah, that's the Journal of Hospital Medicine. Oh, wow. Yeah. We like that journal.
1: Yeah, they're great. All right. (laughs) 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 Let's talk about this then. What what has been the. Like, what's the evidence that antipsychotics are a good idea in delirium?
4: Uh, So. I think when you talk about delirium in the hospital, there's a couple things to think about. One is, are you trying to prevent the delirium? And so there's a whole bunch of data on prevention of delirium. And what I'll tell you for the prevention of delirium is there's really no good data that there are any good medications to prevent delirium, except for maybe possibly melatonin. I, I like that trial. Maybe possibly melatonin. And so- you can think about using melatonin. There's a relatively uh, yeah, r- recent trial on uh, melatonin that used uh, melatonin, uh, but in uh, It was, in the it was ICU. a very
0: low dosage, though. It's like yeah. 0. 0.5
4: to 1.0. Uh, I can pull the trial. So they, this was, they used the... Uh, they, there's a ramel trial, ICU treatment study. Um, this was in uh, 88 uh, ICU patients. Uh, and they seemed to find they would give this uh, at basically 8 p.m. every night uh, mm-hmm. to see how the patients would do. And they found that using ramelteon, which is a type of melatonin, just acts on uh, some of the melatonin receptors and not others that melatonin acts on. Uh, ramelteon tended to decrease the duration of ICU stay as well as decrease the occurrence rate and duration of delirium, and it was statistically significant they were using an eight milligram dose in this uh, study, so it may work, and I think there's very little downside to melatonin that people are mm-hmm. finding. I think one of the pearls for melatonin, and we actually tell this to the residents because uh, when what residents are changing from night to daytime schedules, it can often be very difficult to then fall asleep we will tell the residents that it may be easier to fall asleep after you've gone from nights to days. If you take melatonin or rambletean about three hours before you try to go to sleep. So don't take it at 10 and think you're going to fall asleep at ten thirty. Yeah. take it at whatever seven or eight and think you're going to fall asleep three hours later.
0: So, so the, the trial that, that I know about was published 2011. It was a randomized controlled trial, 145 individuals. It reduced the incidence of delirium from, uh, thirty-one percent to twelve percent, treating with zero point five milligrams of melatonin at I believe six p.m. I, I'm trying to pull up the article itself. Yeah, the
1: the one the, the, the other article that I found about this was this uh, interventions for preventing delirium in hospitalized nine non ICU patients. It's a Cochrane review from 2016 by Siddiqui, and that included three studies of melatonin, not the fancy uh, ramelteon, ramelteon, whatever it is. And that that said, they couldn't find they didn't they didn't think there was clear evidence that melatonin reduced uh, delirium. Uh, they didn't comment on the prevention piece though.
4: Now the the Journal of Clinical Anesthesia in 2020 uh, just did the effects of melatonin on delirium and hospitalized patients: a systematic review and ah, analysis. So that
1: one. Okay. Um, so that and they
4: say, in the summary, the results of this meta-analysis of 16 trials neither support nor oppose the use of melatonin hmm. in the prevention what? of delirium yeah. of hospital- hospitalized patients. Really planting <sighs> their <a> the flag.
2: Good. <laughs> exactly.
4: <laughs> All but right. They, it does seem like they might have a significantly shorter duration of ICU stay. So melatonin's uh, something to think about. Otherwise, think about. Uh, otherwise there are no medications that have been shown to prevent delirium in the hospital. And we can talk about the non-pharmacologic stuff because that's where the money is mm. uh, for prevention. Uh, but we can also talk about that as we talk about the treatment of delirium. So then you go from prevention. Uh, it didn't work. The patient is now delirious like the patient uh, in the clinical uh, study that, or the, the, uh,
1: all right. you mean this case from Cashlac? Sorry, I mean, <laughs> Cashlac yeah. case. Totally believable name, Mr. Yes.
5: Dolman. Mr. <laughs> Dolman. <laughs> uh, poor guy. <laughs> so, so he
1: is.
4: He sure sounds delirious, and we should do our test on uh, our questioning of him to make sure he's delirious. But he sure seems delirious at this point. So, how do you actually treat him? Um, and again, it tom- comes down to the fact that really you don't want to treat him overall with any medications. Benzos don't work unless you are in withdrawal, so don't give benzos to this patient. Uh, Acetylcholine esterase inhibitors, they don't work, uh, so don't give that to him. And antipsychotics, even though they've been trying to use them or uh, meds like them since 1949, uh, they don't seem to work either in uh, all of the systematic reviews that have been coming out Uh, in the last few years, there are a couple studies. There was a study from 2005 and, um, a a study from 2010 that made it, uh, look like it, there was possibly some benefit of giving haloperidol, uh, or quetiapine, but those, both of those studies, the first one, the 2005 study was actually supposed to be a a study of preventing it. But then when people got it, they were still getting the haloperidol and it seemed to help. So that was a secondary endpoint in that study. And then the 2010 studies of a study of 40 patients with quetiapine, and it actually didn't help on days one, three, or 10. But if you look at all of the days put together, maybe it decreased the severity. So very little good data that it helps. And then all of the systematic reviews, and there were just uh, another one in 2019. And actually, a lot of these systematic reviews have been done from my colleagues uh, at Johns Hopkins. So I believe them. Innate. <laughs> um, the, those systematic reviews all show that antipsychotics actually do not help patients who are uh, delirious. Uh, and the Geriatric Society, the American Society of Geriatrics, said that prescribing practitioners should not prescribe antipsychotics or benzos for the treatment of older adults with post operative delirium uh, who are not agitated and threatening substantial harm to self or others. And I think that is true whether it's post-operative delirium or whether it's delirium on the medical service.
1: And let's remember, these have an FDA, they have a black box warning for atypical antipsychotics since 2005 and I think since 2007 or so for, uh, or 2008 for the, the, you know, the original antipsychotics like haloperidol.
4: Yeah, there are real risks. Um, There are EPS symptoms that happen with this. There's aspiration pneumonia that can happen with this. There's arrhythmia that happens with this. And yeah, it's particularly black boxed around the treatment of dementia patients because they find more of them die. So
1: (laughs) that's bad. That's bad. (laughs) Starting Uh, at 30 days. So
4: um, we don't want to then extrapolate that to our patients who are uh, just delirious uh, by trying to kill them by giving them antipsychotics in the hospital. I guess then the, the question, and maybe I'm, I'm asking a question myself, but maybe I should let you all ask questions, um, is what do we do then if we're not going to use antipsychotics?
1: You're, you're reading our mind. You can, you're doing great, you're, yeah. Yeah, you're, <laughs> bring us home, bring us home. <laughs> so,
4: so as I continue to ask questions of myself, so the first thing is um, don't leave in IVs if you don't need them. So uh, that patient who's picking at the IV, get that IV out if they don't need them. And then there are people, this is not supported by data, but if you need to keep the IV in, there are a lot of people who uh, suggest that you can take well-taped gauze and extend it from the wrist to the shoulder um, with any attached tubing exiting out behind the shoulder, and the patient will play with the gauze, but then leave the IV alone. Uh, So that is something to try. Uh, Another thing is as I think Tony and I would agree all the time, don't draw blood if you don't need to draw blood. Don't take vital signs if you don't need to take vital signs. Leave the poor patients alone and do the things that we know um, can help patients both prevent it and then probably treat it. And that's things like get rid of problem medications, treat the withdrawal, correct the uh, metabolic disturbances. Let the poor person sleep. We don't let patients sleep. Get the patients mobile. Um, oftentimes, uh, our, we come up about thirty percent of the times with patients should have bed rest. And then, if you look at total amount of time of patients out of bed, it's like forty-three minutes that they're out of bed. So ninety percent of the time, they're in bed. So get them up and moving. And then, of course, um, get out the things that are holding them down to the bed, like the urinary catheter and other lines that they don't need. Um, if they have an infection, treat an infection. Uh, try to get them out of that semi-private room that is really noisy. It's my favorite euphemism, semi-private. I, I believe <laughs> no privacy in semi-private. And then you have the crazy neighbor who is watching TV until 5 in the morning and your patient is not falling asleep. Get them into a private room so that they can act, uh, actually sleep. And then a lot of people say, uh, make sure you are treating their pain adequately. So there, there are things to do. To try to treat their delirium, which are also probably most of the same things that you would do uh, to try to avoid delirium in the first place.
1: Talk about low-hanging fruit. I <laughs> there's been a couple a couple articles that I've seen in the past year or two just talking about this, like how poor of a job we do of just like normal things, like just getting the like just common sense, getting the patient to move, like get like stopping unnecessary labs and vitals, and just letting the patient sleep through the night if there's no reason to like right. check their vitals in the middle of the night it is so hard like you put signs on the patient's doors and in the room and then I come back the next day I'm like did you, Did you get sleep last night they're like no they still woke me up and did my vitals even if you like y- it's just hard to get it to stop yeah well this Whenever- thing
2: specifically like the fact that the, the med- medicine interventions that were the most efficacious are the ones that let patients sleep they you yes. know, either can melt on or, or melty on like it's the things that knock <laughs> well, them knock them out but, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, just to sort of sleep soundly through the night are the ones that seem to actually have effects. Yeah. So just
4: let yeah. let the poor people sleep. Let them sleep. Yeah.
2: And have you guys right,
4: not, have at at CashLack? Have you seen the activity vests?
1: No, these were. Yeah, I don't know if these were like. In I don't know. It, I was thinking about them. I'm like, it seems very practical, but like, if I knew that in the future I'm going to be put in an activity vest, just <laughs> playing around like. <laughs> But I guess it's better to be tied to the bed and given how to pair it all. Yeah,
4: yeah we, we, have, we have them at Hopkins. Uh, one of my patients was wearing an activity uh. vest uh, the other day and was totally playing with the vest and not messing with the IV. It was really impressive. Yeah. Uh, and you probably have them at cash. Like you probably have them at, at your hospitals. You just need to ask for them. Need to ask uh, for them. And you, you, you don't even know that you them.
1: So it's got like buttons and zippers and all sorts of things and exactly.
5: when, when we need activity would... vests it's just going to be an iPhone. They're just going to give us an old generation iPhone. <laughs>
4: yeah. It's the just... kind of the kind of stuff you give your 15 month old. Yeah, or a Mac. Exactly.
1: Oh. <laughs> uh, Stewart, come on. We're uh, Mac might want to sponsor the show someday. <laughs> they do uh, not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right, gentlemen, I think we have to start wrapping up. Tony, we'll, we'll start with you You want to give us your, any take home points and then we'll, we'll go back to Lenny for his.
5: Yeah. So I think the key take home point for supplemental oxygen is I think the listeners need to remember it's a medication. And so you have to have a good indication for it and you have to have parameters for its use. Um, and just knowing those parameters is obviously a secondary importance, but just starting with that, it can be harmful and we have to treat it as a medication. If we just recognize that, we're going to make a lot of progress. Lenny?
4: So uh, I'll go with two. One is uh, for your patients uh, who have acute MI, uh, for your patients who have uh, acute decompensated heart failure, likely for your ICU patients, if they have a potassium of 3.5 to 4.5, that is totally fine. Don't mess with it. Don't buff it. Leave it at 3.5 to 4.5. For your patients who are delirious, leave the medications alone and try all the non-pharmacologic stuff that we know helps.
1: Okay. We will leave it at that. Did you
5: guys want to plug anything? Absolutely. So uh, in September of this year, there's a a teaching physiology on the fly course uh, taught at Mount Desert Island in Maine. Uh, If you love popovers, uh, like physiology... Uh, and enjoy crisp weather in Maine, it, you you couldn't do any better. I think, although Paul, were you the one who said that you'd go there for just a, I forget, there was something you said you'd go there for. And it wasn't any of the things I listened. <laughs> I
2: have no memory. No, I, 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 Maine seems nice. Sure. <laughs>
4: they have good lobster. lobster yeah, sure.
5: The lobster is, fun. it's actually a great course. All right. Thanks guys.
4: Thanks for having us.
2: This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. Get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com forward slash podcast and sign up for our mailing list at thecurbsiders.com forward slash knowledge food to get our weekly show notes
0: in your inbox. That's right, Paul, because we're committed to providing you with high-value practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A special thanks to our producers for this, this episode. That would be Burton Shin, fourth-year Medpeds resident at Brown, and yours truly, Justin Burke. And to our social media team, Hannah R. Abrams on Twitter, Beth Garbs Garbatelli on Instagram, and Chris, the Chu Man Chew on Facebook. Until next time, I've been Stuart Kent Brigham. I have been Justin Lee Burke.
1: And I wanted to thank Stuart for composing our theme music and thank Claire Morgan at Notterly for editing our audio. Until next time... I've been Dr. Matthew Frank Waddo.
2: And I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Hey, Paul.
0: I got a question for you. Oh, no. What did the heart say to the lungs after the oxygen fairy came at night? You're going to tell me no matter what I say.
4: <laughs>
0: yep.
2: It's, a uh, oh, that's rad. No. Yeah, let us sit. <laughs> Just let us <it> sit. <laughs> Claire, keep all of this. <laughs> all right, I'm hitting Stop.